Isaiah chapter 64, verses 8 and 9. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. And all of us are the work of your hand. Do not be angry beyond measure, O Lord. Neither remember iniquity forever. Behold, look now, all of us are your people. Our Father, we are truly grateful that we are in your hands, that you are the potter and that we are the clay. And Father, it is your desire to continue to work us into vessels of honor to your name, to work out the imperfections and the things that hinder the working of your spirit through us. And Lord, we want to be yielded in your hands that you might be able to do what you want to do in our lives. And as we study your word, <clears throat> that's part of the, of the potter's hand at work. In fact, that's a main part of the potter's hand at work. And we trust, Lord, that we will be yielded to the words of your spirit as you speak to us through your word today from the life of David, of Jonathan, of Saul, Father, I pray that you will touch each one in here today and minister to the needs. Pray for those that are away. Many are traveling in various parts of the world today. We ask that you will minister to them. Father, we thank you for your love and your grace that is demonstrated to us not only in the Word, but through our daily experience with you. We submit to your authority in Christ's name. Amen. We are still in the book of 1 Samuel. We are in chapter 20, 1 Samuel chapter 20. I'd like to read beginning at verse 18. Then Jonathan said to him, that's to David, tomorrow is the new moon and you will be missed because your seat will be empty. When you have stayed for three days, you shall go down quickly and come to the place where you hid yourself on that eventful day and you shall remain by the stone easel. And I will shoot three arrows to the side, as though I shot at a target. Behold, I will send the lad, saying, Go find the arrows. If I specifically say to the lad, Behold, the arrows are on this side of you, get them, then come, for there is safety for you, and no harm, as the Lord lives. But if I say to the youth, Behold, the arrows are beyond you, go, for the Lord has sent you away. As for the agreement of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. And the, and the king sat on his seat as usual, the seat by the wall. Then Jonathan rose up, and Abner sat down by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not speak anything that day, for he thought, it is an accident. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. And it came about the next day, the second day of the new moon, that David's place was empty. So Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has the son of Jesse not come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan then answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem, for he said, Please let me go, since our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to attend. And now if I have found favor in your sight, please let me get away that I may see my brothers. For this reason he has not come to the, to the king's table. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. And he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, 
neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now therefore send and bring him to me, for he must surely die. But Jonathan answered Saul his father and said to him, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Then Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. <coughs> then Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and did not eat food on the second day of the new moon, for he was grieved over David because his father had dishonored him. Jonathan, we find here, reiterated the impending situation that had already been discussed earlier in the chapter. David is the one who brought this up in the first place to Jonathan, saying to Jonathan, this is the plan that I have, and I'd like for you to follow this plan. And the, the new moon feast was coming up. And as I mentioned last time, the new moon feast, of course, cur occurred approximately every 28 days. It was the beginning of the month. The new moon was the beginning of a new month. And it was, it was a minor festival, sort of on the same level as Shabbat or Sabbath, which comes every week. It was not on the same level, of course, as, as uh, the Day of Atonement or the Festival of Booths or some of those others that only came once a year. But it was important, and it was a, usually a two-day feast, as we see in this particular situation. And so the king was planning for this feast, and he expected all of his courtiers to be there. However, David had no plan on being there, and for the reasons we know from reading in the earlier part of the chapter, because... You remember at the beginning of the chapter, David had been trying to soothe Saul when Saul was in another one of his demonic attacks, and, and Saul hauled off and threw his spear at him, so David uh, fled and went home, and, and uh, the king sent a force of men to try to capture David and bring him uh, to the palace where, where Saul could execute him, and David fled uh, from the presence of Saul and from the city of Gibeah. And so why should he come? I mean, it's really, really kind of amazing that Saul even expects him to come. Why would you expect somebody to come to your festival uh, when you have just on two occasions tried to kill him? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But as we go through this, we discover Saul is not a rational being here in much of what he does. And I don't think it's because there's anything wrong with his brain. It's a spiritual thing with him. Uh, he has a demon which is oppressing him because of his disobedience to God, his rejection of God. So David, fearing for his life, was not about to attend this New Moon Festival. And of course, his absence was going to be very conspicuous because he would sit right at the head table, as it were. David would be at Bethlehem. At least that's what David's, the, the story was to be given to Saul. And, and Jonathan implies that that's true here. He said, now you, you can go, but be sure you're back. And so we assume that David did go to Bethlehem for the festival to be there with his family. And he was supposed to return on the third day and hide in the field. And the scripture says, hide in the field where you hid before on that eventful day. And that harkens back to the 19th chapter where David was hiding in the field and Jonathan and Saul were out talking together in the field. And, and uh, Dave, uh, Jonathan, I'm sorry, Jonathan and Saul were out talking in the field and Jonathan convinced his father that he ought not to be seeking David's life. And, and you remember Saul swore in the name of God that he would not harm David. And Jonathan took that as an oath that he would stick with. But, of course, as we discover in this passage, he does not. So David is familiar with the field, and, and so David is to hide in that same field. The scripture says that he's to hide behind a rock or a stone called Ezel. Now, there is no way to identify that rock. Uh, obviously, a lot of rocks in the Holy Land have been given name from time to time. 
you've ever been there, there are a lot of rocks in the Holy Land. So to identify a specific rock is very, very difficult. And there's no way even of telling from the, the word Ezel itself. Uh, it has no specific meaning. It seems some feel that it just means pile of stones. You know, go hide behind that pile of stones that you know to be uh, there in the field. So Jonathan agrees to this fleece that David has uh, proposed. And I mentioned that last time we read about it. Uh, basically it was that if Saul accepts Jonathan's statement as to the reason David is not there, that he went to Bethlehem to be with his family because he hadn't been there for a long time and his brothers demanded that he come. If Saul accepts that excuse, then all is well and, and David knows that he can return to the royal court. But if, if Saul gets angry and, and really upset, then David will know that he cannot return to the royal court. So this is a fleece. He's doing all of this to test the waters, to see what Saul's reaction will be. And so he's convinced Jonathan to go along with this plan, although Jonathan is very reticent because Jonathan believes that Saul will stick by his promise to not harm David. Jonathan doesn't want anything to happen to David. He doesn't want a split between his father and David because he loves his father and he loves David. He wants them to, be, to remain together. Jonathan laid out his plan on how he was going to inform David about his father's attitude. He had to protect David from being discovered and arrested, so David has to, has to hide. And what you discover as you go on through the remaining part of 1 Samuel, David is always hiding and Saul's always looking for him. Uh, so this, it's beginning here. So David has to hide and uh, Jonathan doesn't want to give away his uh, hiding place. But at the same time, Jonathan does not want to be suspected of collaborating with somebody who is sought after by his father. And so he has to figure out a way that he can inform David about what the result of the fleece was without actually exposing either one of them to danger. Jonathan was a warrior. Warriors have to practice. Just because you become good with a bow and an arrow and a sword and a spear doesn't mean you just always remain good. You do have to practice. And so Jonathan said, I, I will go out in the field with my bow and my arrow and I will shoot as if shooting at a target and nobody will suspect, of course, because I, I'm a soldier and I need practice and so that nobody will think anything of me going out and practicing in the field. I will shoot my arrows within earshot of you, David, of this pile of rocks or this rock where you're hiding. And I will, I will have a page with me, a young lad, uh, what we would call in the medieval world, a page. And I will shoot the arrows and I will send him out to retrieve the arrows. And if I say to the lad, oh, the arrows are this side of you, that means all is well, David, and you can come out and you can return to the royal court. But if I say to the lad, the arrows are shot, are the arrows not beyond you? That means you've got to flee, David, you must run because it's not well at the royal court. Your life is in danger. Jonathan has acknowledged at this point that if his father is angry with David, it is a sign from the Lord that David should flee. The last thing Jonathan said to David was to remind them of the covenant. And we read about that earlier. Uh, the covenant that the two had made together, that they would love each other and they would love each other's house, their, their descendants, and would protect one another. Now, as you come to the feast, again, we, we, we cannot really picture the royal palace, if you want to call it that, in the sense that we normally do Hollywood style, you know, grand place with pillars. Saul is the very first king of Israel. Israel's never had a king before. 
there, there has been no project to build a palace that we know of. He probably simply held royal court in a fairly large room or building there in the city of Gibeah that he probably took over. It probably would look to most of the kings of the world at that time as a pretty shabby little place. Most of the kings, of course, of the world at that time looked at Israel as a shabby little kingdom. And so you, you have to picture it as rather very modest, I think, uh, place here where they're meeting together. Saul sat with his back to the wall. Very wise thing for a king to do. Nobody can come at you from the backside if you got your back to the wall. And on his right would be Jonathan. On his left, probably Abner, who was his commander-in-chief of his army. And I would suspect that either just beyond David or just beyond Abner was the seat of David because David was the son-in-law of the king and David was the most successful commander of military forces and certainly uh, the name best known in Israel at that time. The closer one sat to the king, the higher was your status in the pecking order of the courtiers around the king. David was a mighty warrior. And so he would not have been very far from Saul. Well, the first day of the festival came, as we read there, and Saul took note. David place is empty, and, but it says he was silent. He didn't talk. He didn't ask any questions. He thought, okay, David is not here. It's an accident, it says there in the scripture. But by that, he means that David has inadvertently caused himself to be ceremonially unclean. In those days, you remember, if you, if you touched a dead body, if you had any uh, emissions out of your body, uh, anything like that made you ceremonially unclean, and you had to go wash, and, and a certain period of time had to pass before you were clean again and could take part in the religious festivals. And so this is what he's assuming. I think he's trying to think that this is true. He wants it to be true. He doesn't want David to purposely ab be absenting himself from the festival because Saul has ulterior motives, as we well know. On the second day of the festival, the last day of the festival, David's seat is still empty. This disturbs Saul greatly now because if he had been ceremonially unclean, he should be here by now and he should be asking my forgiveness for missing the first day, but no, he's still absent at this point. So he questions his son Jonathan because he knows that David and Jonathan are friends. And he figures that probably Jonathan knows what is going on with David. Jonathan gave the answer that he and David had agreed upon. This is the fleece. David has asked permission to go down to Bethlehem to be with his family. His brother has demanded it, obviously implying his eldest brother. In those days, in that society, the eldest brother had the authority of the family under the father. And of course, when the father died, he became the patriarch of the family, of the clan, if, if that was the leading family in the clan. And so younger brothers did what the older brothers asked them to do. And so this was the fleece that was laid out. As David suspected and as Jonathan hoped would not be true, Saul became furious. Just imagine, this man has dared not to come to my feast just to go to be with his family. His anger against David became so intense and David wasn't there, so he heaped it on, whoops, heaped it on his son. Because his son is the one who gave him the story. His son is the one that in the story gave him permission to go. You gave him permission without asking me? 
And of course, he has always suspected Jonathan and David's relationship. And so he focuses his anger on his own son. You can't quite get the real meaning just from reading the English translation here of the he to his own son, Jonathan. He is denigrating his character. He's maligning his mother, that is, Jonathan's mother, Saul's wife. He's in effect calling his son a bastard, a traitor, and a fool. I mean, this is the son, and in his, Saul's mind, heir apparent. Jonathan is a powerful warrior. Dangerous thing to say those things to such a man. In verse 31 of this passage, it's quite clear that Saul understood David's threat to Jonathan's position as heir to the throne. Samuel had come and told Saul that because of his sin, another man will be raised up to take the throne from your family. And Saul recognizes this as a threat. And what we discover in this passage is that he intends to thwart that from happening. He wants to prevent the word of God through Samuel from coming about. This is truly diabolical. We all know from studying scripture that down through biblical history, Satan has endeavored, futilely of course, to thwart the plan of God, to hinder the plan of salvation. You know, I, all through time, you know, he tries to wipe out the seed of Israel. And then when the Messiah is born, he tries to have him killed by Herod's orders. And he thinks he succeeds finally when Christ is crucified. All through time, Satan has been trying to thwart the plan of God. But of course, futilely, because God is omnipotent and Satan is a creature. We always have to remember that. Sometimes our minds get tainted by, by Zoroastrian kind of thinking or Gnostic kind of thinking that somehow there's a good force and a bad force and they're kind of co-equal. And that somehow there's this titanic struggle that probably good will win in the end, but, but there's almost an equality there. It, it's, it's like in Mormonism, you know, Jesus Christ is the, the son of God that was chosen to be the Savior, but the Satan is the son who thought he could be the Savior and, you know, that they're, they're, they're equal. That is not true. Satan was made by God. He was created by God. He's a creature. God could snuff him out at any moment if he so chose. Try as he may, Saul's efforts to keep David off the throne are equally futile. How can you stand against the sovereign purposes of God? Satan tries. Saul will try, but all to no avail. Most of us, I think, understand because of the years that we lived, live, that sometimes life isn't real smooth. You know, sometimes it's like this. Well, when Saul of Tarsus tried to destroy God's people, Christ met him on the road and said, it's hard for you, Saul, to be kicking against the goads. To, to go against the plan of God is very hard. It's like swimming up a waterfall. For us, the difficulty in life, as long as we're seeking God's will and trying to live by it, is created by, of course, Satan. And, and, and by the product of the fall and the struggles that are just natural in this world. But to go against the will of God is far tougher, far tougher than to try to live according to the will of God. And, and Saul is discovering this. Every time he turns to do something, it's thwarted. It's thwarted by the power of God. 
Well, in spite of his vow, he had vowed before the God of heaven, I will not harm David before his son. He had said that. Saul now lets it all hang out. The real Saul comes forth here at this point, and he commands Jonathan, you bring David to here to me right now, and I want him executed. Jonathan dared to ask his father to justify his order of execution. By what right? Upon what charges are you ordering the execution of David? Saul's the king. His word's supposed to be law. Saul went ballistic. Three times Saul had tried to nail David to the wall with his spear when David was strumming his lyre to comfort Saul. And now Saul turns on his own son and hurls his spear at him, trying to pin him to the wall. You imagine. What kind of rationality is that? This is the one that you want on the throne instead of David. And you've got to kill him? How does that help? He's acting irrationally. In his fury, he seeks to destroy the very one in whom all his hopes were placed. But it was because he stood in the stead of David in his eyes at that moment. The last half, <laughs> to me, there's a, there's a lot of humor in Scripture, even in serious situations. But the last half of ver verse 3, all this has happened. And Saul is, you know, in a rage, tried to nail Saul, uh, Jonathan to the wall. And so at the last half of verse 33 is very understated. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. <laughs> like, oh, okay. This is real. He's really going to do it. Jonathan stormed out of the feast. He was livid. Why? Because his father had publicly humiliated him and his dear friend David in front of the whole court and even tried to kill his own son there in that festival room. But we're also told that grief overcame Jonathan also because he loved David as if David were his own brother. All you think of is that David has given of his life, uh, of his energy, of his strength, of his ability, of his loyalty to serve Saul well. He did what no man could do, and that is he stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with Goliath and killed this enemy of Israel. And he has led armies successfully, and he's defeated the Philistines over and over again. How could his father turn around and treat all that service as nothing and humiliate and defame and dishonor this man before everybody? Jonathan was really upset and grieved. Well, let's read what uh, happened next in the latter part of the chapter, verse 35. Now it came about in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field for the appointment with David, and a little lad was with him. And he said to his lad, Run, find now the arrows which I am about to shoot. As the lad was running, he shot an arrow past him. When the lad reached the place of the arrow which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the lad and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the lad, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. And Jonathan's lad picked up the arrow and came to his master. But the lad was not aware of anything. Only Jonathan and David knew about the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the lad and said to him, Go, bring them to the city. When the lad was gone, David rose from the south side and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed each other and wept together, but David more. And Jonathan said to David, Go in safety, inasmuch as we have sworn to each other in the name of the Lord, saying, 
the Lord will be between you, me and you, and between my descendants and your descendants forever. Then he rose and departed while Jonathan went into the city. This is the morning following the great blow-up, the near pinning of Jonathan to the wall. And so Jonathan sadly went out into the field. He had a message to deliver that he did not want to deliver to, to his dear friend David. So he sent his page out ahead to retrieve the arrows, and then he shot the arrows over him. When the boy reached to the place near where the arrows had fallen, Jonathan shouted out the appropriate signal. He says, are not the arrows beyond you? Is not the arrow beyond you is exactly what it says. What he was doing, of course, by this was informing David that the answer was as David had suspected, that Saul wants your hide and you had better flee. Well, the message had been delivered. David knew the answer. Saul had delivered the, the signal to David, and, and that should have been it. Then he and the lad should have gone back into the city, but that's not what happened. He called the lad. He said, hurry back with the arrows. Please hurry. And so the little guy came running back, and, and he gave him the bow, and he gave him the quiver of arrows, and he said, please take them back to my home in the city of Gibeah. Why did he do that? Because they had made this elaborate method of informing David so that they wouldn't have to face each other, so David would be hidden and there'd be no collusion that would be obvious to anyone here. Well, the reason was, of course, that they were both so distraught over what this meant that they couldn't depart without seeing one another face to face. It's relationship. The relationship between Jonathan and David was such that he couldn't just... just depart and let the last time they saw each other be the last time they saw each other. And so they had to have this meeting. And they both understood that. And, and, and as the boy went off and, and disappeared out of sight and heading up towards the city of Gibeah, David, we're told, arose from his hiding place and bowed before Jonathan three times. What he was doing, of course, was acknowledging Jonathan's superior position. He was the son of the king, and he was also he was also expressing his, his, um, his uh, submission to Jonathan's loving kindness. They kissed each other on the cheek and cried on each other's shoulders. But we're told that David was more inconsolable than was Jonathan. He cried the more because he was going to have to flee. He was not going, you know, they, they didn't know if they'd ever see each other again. Fortunately, they will see each other again. If we read on in the into the uh, 23rd chapter, I believe it is, we discover that they will again have a meeting. But uh, this could have been their last time when they disappeared and departed from each other and to never see each other again. They, they of course, didn't know. They reaffirmed their covenant. Jonathan would do his best to preserve David and, and his family. And David, because Jonathan understood that David would be the next king, asked that he would Treat well Jonathan and, and his offspring. And David will be very meticulous about keeping this covenant. Let me just jump ahead for one example of this into 2 Samuel chapter 21. This is after David is king. In the seventh verse we read, But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath of the Lord, which was between them, between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. 
Most of you are aware, of course, of Mephibosheth because his name is so unusual that he was the son of Jonathan who had been crippled in his feet because his nursemaid had dropped him when he was small. And so here is David looking out for this, this son of Jonathan because of his oath which he had made. As I mentioned to you last time, it was very, very common throughout history, whether this history be China or India or Europe or wherever it might be, not so much in Europe, but <clears throat> earlier in the history of Europe, that whenever uh, a new dynasty came to power, in other words, a new family, somebody unrelated to the previous ruling family, was not uncommon for the new family to wipe out all the existing members of the former ruling family because they could be a rallying point for people who might want to reinstate them in place of the interlopers, the usurpers uh, that were now on the throne. So this could easily happen. <clears throat> Once David was in, on, on the throne, he could just wipe out all of Saul's family so they would not have any threat from that quarter. And so Jonathan was pleading that that would, uh, would not happen. Well, let's read on in the 21st chapter of 1 Samuel. Um, um. It doesn't seem like Jonathan's just an incredible godly man. He knows what's going to happen and, uh, and the meaning of it, and yet he still wants God's plan. And he, he demonstrated his godliness her back at the beginning of Saul's reign, and he continues to do that even knowing that he has to die in order for this to come about, or probably has to die. I mean, they don't know for certain here, but yeah. the reason for the, the pact is in part because he suspects that he's going to have to die with his father. Yeah. And that's part of the emotion in the moment, is that David knows that too. Yeah. You know, this, this decision to hide David, the decision to help him escape, is a death sentence. It's a good point, Larry. Um, trying to put ourselves in the place of these two men is... He wants God's will, all of that. And he demonstrated that clear back to the beginning, that he was yeah. willing to go up and stand before all these Philistines, risk his life for God. Isn't that kind of amazing, too, because we have this tendency to frequently say, like father, like son, you know, that if the father goes awry, the child will go awry. But as you point out, John Jonathan was, as far as we know, godly from the beginning to the place of self-sacrifice. Piggybacking on Larry's point, too, he asks if David will remember his offspring, Mephibosheth, and, and later uh, it's part of that whole thing. Yeah. He hasn't lost confidence in God's goodness to him. Right. The loving kindness of God is mirrored in the lives of both of these two young men, in David and in Jonathan, and of course the opposite in Saul. <coughs> so it's pretty amazing. And, and it helps us to understand that nothing is a foregone conclusion, that children of, of a dissolute parents do not have to turn out dissolute themselves. God, through his mighty power, can, can touch any life. And uh, so that's great hope for us <laughs> and for the generations that follow us. Uh, hopefully not because we were dissolute, but, dissolute, but, but we know that even godly people can have children that uh, sometimes uh, run astray. But God is faithful in, in either case. Good, thank you. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came trembling to meet David, and he said to him, Why are you alone? and no one with you. And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has commissioned me with a matter, and has said to me, Let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you, and with which I have commissioned you, 
and I have directed the young men to a certain place. Now therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever can be found. The priest answered David and said, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but there is consecrated bread, if only the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest and said to him, Surely women have been kept from us as previously, when I set out, and the vessels of the young men were holy, though it was an ordinary journey, how much more than today will their vessels be holy? <laughs> that verse is, yeah, kind of like going around circles there. So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, chief of Saul's shepherds. David is running away. And what we discover from chapters 21 through 30 is the story of the pursuit of David by Saul. How long this cat and mouse game went on, we don't really know. We can only speculate. But certainly it took place over years. And the best estimate is that this pursuit of David by Saul <laughs> uh, took place over approximately the last 15 years of the 11th century before Christ. In other words, from roughly 1015 to 10 to 1000, uh, you know, from 1015 to about 1000 BC, somewhere in that uh, neighborhood. David is no longer able to find protection with Samuel. He tried that, and we know how that turned out. And nor now is he able to find protection in Jonathan. And so he tries the tabernacle. So he goes to the tabernacle. Now the tabernacle had been at Shiloh. But you remember we read earlier in the chapter that Shiloh was destroyed by the Philistines. And so the tabernacle had been moved to a place called Nob. Now, the location of Nob, the best estimate is that it was a town located about three miles southeast of Gibeah. So not really very far from Saul's headquarters. Saul probably wouldn't think, first of all, that David would flee to any place so near. Uh, so David ran there to the tabernacle. Now, tabernacle services were happening at Nob, but the ark was not at Nob. The ark was still at Kirith-Jerim, where it had been placed, remember, after the Philistine debacle. And it will not be moved uh, up until David will eventually move it, and he will move it to the city of Jerusalem, ultimately. Ahimelech is the priest here at the tabernacle at the time, one of, one of 85 priests that was there. And he came out to meet David, and he came out, it's, it says, fear, with fear and trepidation. Uh, why? because he knew there had been a falling out between David and Saul. Why is David here? It's kind of like a fugitive from royal court is here at the tabernacle, and he was a bit concerned about this. And so he asks David, why are you here alone? And David gives a very oblique answer. It's, it's hard to fathom what David is really trying to say here. And it's because he is creating subterfuge here. In his mind, he thought he was telling Ahimelech the truth because when he said, I'm on business of the king, in his mind, David was thinking, the king is God. But he knew very well that Ahimelech was assuming that the king was Saul. Now, just because you think what you're saying is true, 
but you're creating a false image in somebody else's mind does not make what you're saying true. You're still telling a lie. Because if that's what the other person understands, then it is a lie, even if you are you know, fudging in your mind about it. David asks the priest for bread. The priest said, there's no regular bread here. <laughs> they must have eaten it all or something. I hope Himmelich was telling the truth. But anyway, <clears throat> there's no regular bread here. There is only the, the, the sanctified bread, the bread of the presence, the show bread, that was cooked and placed every week uh, there in the presence of the Lord. Let, let me go back to Leviticus chapter 24, uh, reading at verse 5. Leviticus 24, verse 5. Then you shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. And you shall set them in two rows, six in a row, on the pure gold table before the Lord. And you shall put frankincense on each row, that it may be a memorial portion for the bread, even an offering by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath day he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. It is an everlasting covenant before for the sons of Israel. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat in a holy place. For it is most holy to him from the Lord's offerings by fire, his portion forever. So David is in effect going to be offered the priest's portion by the priest. David asks for bread. The priest said there is no ordinary bread here. There is only the priest, there's only the showbread here. But I will give that bread to you, even though it's dedicated to the priests. The priest had the power to give it to whomever he wished. And he said, I will give it to you if you and your men are ceremonially clean. And he makes it very specific what he meant by that, that you have kept yourself from women. In other words, you've had no sexual intercourse recently. Implicit in his statement is the idea of sexual immorality. Because Ahimelech knew, as is true throughout history, all too frequently, that soldiers are notorious for yielding to immoral temptations when they're out of the confines of their society, of their home, of their village. Uh, they, they think they're out somewhere where there is going to be no answering to anybody. They do things that are immoral. Not all, of course, but you know, it, was, it was common. And so this is what he's implying in part two. Not just that uh, you know, they'd been at home with their wives, but hey, you know, there, there may have been some, some immorality here. Well, we discover that this is fitting with the teaching of Scripture having to do with sanctification. Because throughout Scripture, sexual purity is an expression of sanctification. Probably the most powerful passage on that is in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning at verse 3, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, and that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but sanctification. 
Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is a really important piece because we are living in a day and age when the youth, even who call themselves Christian, are saying that the, quote, Victorian ideas of the church are outmoded and they don't apply anymore. They aren't the Victorian ideas of the church. They are the Word of God. Sexual immorality, homosexuality, you know, relationships before marriage, adultery, all, all of these things have been and always will be sin in the eyes of God. And our sanctification is expressed in living in that area, not only that area, but at least in that area, in a way that is pure before God. And, and this is what Ahimelech is understanding and what he's implying to David. And it is the truth that still adheres today, even if we are in the X generation and the Y generation, as if that really makes any difference in terms of the Word of God. It doesn't make a bit of difference. God is unchanging. Whatever generation we are, baby boomer or baby buster or, or whatever we are, God's Word is immortal. It's unchanging. It always applies in every situation to every people. It's absolute. Of course, we live in a society that doesn't want any absolutes. Post-Christian. Beyond all that stuff, you know. And that's why we're seeing so many things that are coming about today. The, the desire to clone humans and, and all the other things that are related to that is, are becoming rampant because leaving the teachings of Scripture as old wives' fables and myths and not the truth of the sovereign God. Well, I, I better stop there and we'll pick it up next week because Jesus has something very specific to say about what David did that day.